Lord willing, for the summer, our, our plan is to take a different aspect of the person of God and his character and spend the summer together learning more about who God is and therefore what he does. And uh, it should be a great time uh, together. So last week, Nathaniel basically introduced the subject to us by saying that God can be known. And that's a tremendous truth. So if I could rebuild along with Nathaniel a couple other pieces of the foundation, and then today we'll talk specifically about God as our Father. The most important thing about you and about me is what we think about when we think about God. Our understanding of God forms the, the lenses over our eyes through which we view literally everything in life. Nothing is detached from that. Our perspective on ourselves, on others, on the purpose of life, on work, on sex, on rest, on money, hobbies, kids, what's worth giving your life to, your answer to all of those things is rooted in your picture, your understanding of who God is. Our view of God directly affects how we handle suffering, what motivates us to get up in the morning, what ethical or moral standards we choose to live by, what we find worthy of praise, what we think about fortune and fame and power and pleasure, temptation, joy, success, failure. Nothing is untouched by what we think about when we think about God. Now, the interesting thing about that is none of us in this room today see God 100% fully for who he really is. All of us in some way or another, to some degree or another, have a slightly uh, modified or incorrect view of who God is. Why is that? Well, we're hindered by our own sin, by the sins of others, by what we've seen in life, by the incorrect things we've been taught, by our current cultural whims. All of those things fundamentally impact the way we think about God. Therefore, what we think about when we think about God. So what we want to do in this series this summer is hold our lenses through which we think about God, see God, up to what the scriptures actually say. And to the degree that those align, then we can celebrate that. To the degree that they don't, then we're faced with a decision. Will we accept the truth of what scripture says and align ourselves under that and ask God to clean that lens up? Or will we choose rather to continue to view God through our own definition? I hope what we'll do is we'll find that the Bible alone provides us with a correct understanding of who God is. Ultimately, God's self-revelation of himself is the only thing worthy of us putting our confidence in. It has stood the test of time, and you will find it will stand the test of your own life. Each week this summer, we'll cover a different biblical aspect of God's character. If you could think of that like uh, holding up a diamond, if you... Hold up a diamond. Maybe hold up a diamond. It will look a little bit different no matter what angle you're looking at it at, correct? It's cut, never cut exactly the same. It's always a diamond, but in each angle through which you gaze at the diamond, it will look a little bit different. God, in some crude way, if we could use the illustration, is something like that. If we hold up and look at the fact that God says, I'm holy, then we'll understand, we'll get a perspective on a particular aspect of God. If we turn that just a little bit and we say, 
but God is also love, then we'll understand a little bit something else about God. If we turn it a little more and say God's jealous, and we will spend the summer turning that diamond and hopefully gaining a greater appreciation for the character of God. The next three weeks, we'll do that by talking about God as a, as a person. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And the subsequent weeks, we'll talk about what attributes God holds within those persons. It's really going to be wonderful. We're going to have a great time together. So just who is God? The first thing, and I was tasked, assigned to talk to you today about God being triune. Sounds easy to unpack, right? God triune, meaning God the God of the Bible is three in one. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But He's one being, one God, but three distinct persons, the Trinity. Now that clears it all up, right? This is the most easy of topics to launch into our series with. But today my task is to briefly touch on the the fact of God being triune and then to hone in on God as God being the Father. Now this is complex, this is difficult, it's challenging. This is a meat and potatoes kind of sermon, not a cotton candy type of sermon. But let's approach this massive and complex topic by asking four questions. And here's what they will be, just so you get an idea of where we're headed. First, what does God is triune mean? It's not something we walk around talking about very often. Second, where is that in the Bible? If it's not in the scriptures, there's no reason to believe it. So is it actually found in the Bible? We'll take a minute to consider that. Third, why does it matter? Does it really make a difference in daily life to view God as being three in one? Does that actually matter? Or is it something that people, theologians, sit around and argue about but has no practical significance? And then fourth, the question you should be asking is, are you nuts? (laughs) All right, so that's where we're headed. So let's take the first question. First, what does God is triune mean? The best definition I can come up with to describe this is this. There is one God who has eternally existed as three equal yet distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Say it again. There is one God who has eternally existed as three equal yet distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now since the second century A.D., so think a long, long, long time, a lot longer than any of us have been around, Since the second century A.D., theologians have called this teaching of the Bible by what name? Trinity. Now, Trinity is not a word found in the Scriptures, but that doesn't mean the concept isn't in there. Early after Jesus left earth and ascended to heaven, his followers began asking, how do we understand what makes up God? Who is God? And from very, very early on, they used this word Trinity to get at the biblical picture of who God is. Not much later than that, this diagram begins to show up. So this is called the ancient version or ancient Trinity diagram. It is the best picture I know to try and describe something that's indescribable. So Jot it down if you've never seen it or Google it when you get home and you will find it all over the internet. Here's the concept. There is one God, so he's in the middle in kind of the thunderbolt looking 
ooey-gooey thing. God. And then we have shooting off from that. God is the Holy Spirit. God is the Son. God is the Father. Each one are God. Each one make up one God. The Father is not the same thing as the Spirit. So in other words, the, the Spirit is not merely a manifestation of God as the Father. And the Son is not merely a manifestation of the Spirit or the Father. They are distinct, and yet they make up one God. Fantastic picture to try and help us get at something that's exceedingly difficult. So what does God as triune mean? That's what it means. There is one God, Father, Son, Spirit, and their Father's not the Son, Son's not the Spirit, Son is not the Father. Now, where is that in the Bible? The Bible contains thousands of verses when they're synthesized that get us to that understanding. But there's a few places in Scripture where we see all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, at the same time. And that's one of the ways we know they're not the same. So I want to just look at two of them with you. They're both in Matthew, so you can probably look at them easily. They'd be great Scriptures to mark. So look at Matthew 3 with me. We'll look at two major instances in Jesus' life. And we'll merely point out the fact that God is seen in these as Father, Son, Spirit. And then we'll go on. So Matthew 3, verse 16. So Jesus at this point is around 30 years old. And he comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And here's what happens after he's baptized. Verse 16. When Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened up and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We could spend the whole day just on these two verses, but all I want to point out from them is that Matthew clearly portrays to us. And billions of people ever since have believed that this represents a teaching of the Trinity, that there is Jesus, the Son, that there is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and that there is this voice coming out of heaven, the Father saying, I am pleased with my Son. They all three are mentioned and they cannot be one person. They must be representing three in one. And then if you'll jump to the end of Matthew, so several pages later in Matthew 28, incredibly famous passage. We talk about it a lot here at Church on Mill, but not in the way we're going to emphasize today. So Matthew 28, 18. So we've just fast forwarded through all of Jesus' miracles, his teachings, his death on the cross, and we're looking right before he ascends to heaven. This is his commission. This is why the church exists. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, which aren't you glad they went? You have heard the good news that you don't have to live in bondage to sin because this passage was obeyed. Direct connection. I hope in our future there are others who can say that because we as a church have been faithful to go. Whether that's across the cubicle at work or around the world, 
that we're faithful to go and share the gospel. That's normally what we emphasize in this passage. Now, when we go, what are we supposed to do? Baptize them. This should sound very familiar. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the other way we make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then if you know the story, what does he do? He leaves. That's my favorite part. I'm always with you. See you later. Some other day we'll talk about what he's referencing there. But here very clearly we see Father, Son, and Spirit are all equal. We're not saying follow God the Father and do that through this lesser person, the Son, by even a lesser person of less power, the Spirit. They're all three listed together. So do we see in Scripture that there is a Father, a Son, and a Spirit who are all God but make up one God? This very quick overview, we would say yes. Now third, our third question, why does it matter? Why is it important to see the Father, Son, and Spirit as all divine? If you've had any kind of conversation with someone who's not a Christian, this is definitely a topic that comes up. Please allow me to make a few suggestions on why this matters in daily life. First and most obviously, if this is the teaching of Scripture, then this is who God is. And if we want to follow God as He is, not a God of our own making, then we have to come to God on His terms not on our own terms. If we want to know God and have a relationship with Him, then we've got to expect this and accept this as a truthful depiction of who God is. And frankly, there's mystery here. How do we completely make sense of what we've just read? If you can, please hang around afterwards. I still have some questions. There's aspects of this I just flat don't understand. There's mystery to it. It's God we're talking about. So why does it matter? It matters to an infinite degree because we're talking about the only God of the universe and this is how he describes himself. It also matters because this is one of the core truths that makes Christianity distinct from literally every other world religion. If you were to walk around Tempe today and meet a Mormon or a Muslim, or a Buddhist, or a Taoist, or an atheist, or a Jew, or a Hindu, or a Baha'ist, and ask them, who is God? In every one of these cases, you would hear words that sounded familiar to some of the words you would use if you're a Christian. But if you asked specific questions, what you would find is that Christianity's claim is not one of a philosophy about a God. Rather, it's an understanding of God as God's revealed himself on the pages of Scripture. A God who says, I'm Father, Son, and Spirit. And none of those other world religions would describe him in the same way. So we live in a day, in an age, where it's fine to believe whatever you want, as long as you don't claim that that is an exclusive view of truth. So this aspect of what we believe as Christians is incredibly distinct and different. And the best way to reach people is not to say, I am in no way different than you. 
It is to say, I am in no way different from you in the mistakes and sins I make. But in our views of God, we couldn't be more different. And let me tell you about this great God. Not because I am so much wiser and better, but because God in His grace has enabled me to see in the Scriptures. Another reason this matters in daily life is because God is a relational God. He has always existed in community. Just consider this with me for a moment. God loves and serves and gives and rejoices and grieves within Himself forever, for all eternity. God has been joyously, happily serving within the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That is mind-blowing. God's creation of people wasn't because He was lonely. It wasn't because He needed something else. It was because He wanted to invite people into Himself as He has always existed. Does that change how you think about God? I hope so. That's what makes Christianity unique. It's an invitation into a relationship with God as He is, not a God who is some needy, pathetic being. God wants you to know Him. He wants to share Himself with you. He invites you into His community. That's pretty cool. God the Father wants to be your good, perfect, heavenly Father. God the Son wants to be your Savior, the one who died in your place and rose to give you victory. God the Spirit wants to empower you for a life of growth and holiness and joy on the mission of making disciples. God, as Nathaniel told us last week, wants to be known. He invites you to let go of your sin and to release yourself into relationship with Him. Isn't that incredible? Finally, this matters because it helps us understand God as He is and people who are made in His image. Friends, the fact that we are relational beings, despite our very best attempts to be autonomous and live on our own and be in charge, we are intrinsically drawn to some degree or another into a relationship with other people. We desire to be known. Why? Ultimately, because that's a reflection of who God is. We spend a lot of time at our church talking about things like church membership and gospel communities and being a part of disciple makers in order to learn how to live in light of those things. Why? Because you're not busy enough and you need something else to do? Because we don't have anything else to do as leaders? Because these are the traditions that have always been followed? No. Because an innate desire among all people in all places is to know and be known. And that is an incredible, incredible apologetic for there being a God. And for there being a God who is a relational God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now, for those of you in the room, maybe the four of you that are like me, the question you must be asking at this point is, are you absolutely nuts? The Trinity means that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are one God, but there are three. Does that sound a little crazy to anybody else but me? Do you actually expect me and you 
to believe that. How can God be three and God be one? Well, here's my best attempt at trying to answer the question, are you nuts? First of all, yes, of course I am. But not for believing in this. The claim of Scripture, and just step back with me for a moment and think about this. The claim of Scripture, this book, is that there is a being who has always existed and who will always exist. This being has all power. Simply by speaking words, he made the world. This being knows everything. He sees everything. He controls everything. He has never committed an evil act or had an evil thought. He only speaks what's truthful all the time. He always pursues what's just. He's always good. That's a mind-blowing kind of being. So why would it surprise us that he's a little hard to figure out? If that's who he is, if those are his traits, then why would I be able to think I can figure everything out about him? Honestly, the whole idea of the Trinity was one I fought against a long, long, long time, well into my adult years doing what I'm doing now. There is something in me that hates not understanding and being able to articulate something to its fullest. But as I've grown personally in my faith, I've come to see that that was more about my desire for control than it was to worship God as he really is. If God is who he says he is, then we should actually expect being able to not figure him out, to not understand everything about him, to not make sense completely of who he is. He's bigger than us. There is mystery here. But I've come to believe that's not something to apologize for, but to celebrate, but to be thankful for. God is bigger than us. And that's as it should be. This is God. If you do not yet believe this is God as he says he is, then ask him to teach you. Come to the scriptures and ask God to show you if this is truthful. Talk to people who you respect. Now, in our remaining time today, I'd love to transition and talk now just about God as Father. So maybe as a way of transition, a question for you. When you hear the word Father, what's the very first thing that comes to mind? The immediate image. Not God necessarily, but just the word Father. What do you think of? Dad? Dad? Provider, friend, Lord, what? Protection, man, caretaker, at least you didn't say undertaker. All right, those are all really churchy answers. What are some of the non-churchy answers? Abandoner, that's a churchy one too. Yes, it is. Selfish. Selfish. Biological father. Anger. What? I thought you said spam donor. (laughs) That's an image we did not need. The truth is, friends, 
If I were to ask you that question alone, many of us would not have good things to say. Now, if you're sitting next to him, don't elbow him. It is more uncommon today to not have a good image of the word father than it is to have a good image of father. And if that is one of the fundamental ways God describes himself, do you think that impacts how we think about God? The default position of the heart is to equate our heavenly father with our earthly father. Obviously, that's, for some of us, a huge problem. Many of us in this room don't even know our deaths. And if we do, many of us have been harmed by them more than we've been helped by them. But as good as your earthly dad might be, even if he was terrific as mine is, he's got nothing, absolutely nothing, on the Heavenly Father, on God as Father. For some, dad is an angry tyrant who was upset most all the time. But the Heavenly Father isn't like that. God is patient. For some, dad is essentially an old-fashioned, out-of-date old man who might be nice to know, but he doesn't understand you. Even if he did understand you, he wouldn't have the ability to relate to you. But the Heavenly Father is not like that. He is good and wise and present and ever relevant to every single need you have. For some, dad is absent almost all the time. And when he happened to be present, he was disinterested. But the heavenly father is not like that. He, the father, if you are his child, literally calls you the apple of his He rejoices over you. For some, dad is a sexually perverse alcoholic. But the Heavenly Father is not like that. God is set apart from evil. He's pure. He's intrinsically good. He's always trustworthy. For some, dad is a strict disciplinarian who only looks for faults and never delights in anything his kids do. But the Heavenly Father is not like that. God is for you. God is on your side. God, the Heavenly Father, is a God who lavishes His perfect love upon His children. Here's the way the Scriptures put it. 1 John 3. See how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and that is what we are. Now, how does that come about? Well, God the Father is the Father of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And when people are adopted into the family of God through the Son, catch this, all the rights, all the privileges of that Son become yours. You become adopted into the family of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone and you've asked Him to save you, to be in charge of your life, then you've been embraced by the perfect Father. He has welcomed you into His family as one of His own. 
He's your perfect dad. Through Jesus, you can know a perfect dad. We have a father who has literally everything good at his disposal. And he comes to you to give to you and pour out wonderful gifts upon you. Earlier today in our worship gathering, we read together what's known as the Lord's Prayer. There's another version of it in Matthew. You've already been in Matthew today, so hopefully you're still there. Look at Matthew 6 for me. In our remaining few moments together, what I'd like to do is read this famous prayer, which is God the Son, Jesus, praying to God the Father and saying to us, pray like this. And as we look at it together, would you consider just this? What does this tell me about God my Father? If I talk to Him like this, if this is how the Son tells me to talk to His Dad, His Father, then what does that tell me about my Father, my perfect Father? Are you with me? Okay. So let's get a glimpse of our Father. Chapter 6, verse 7. When you pray... Now remember, before we go any further, I'm going to be incredibly deliberate here. Most of us look at our fathers like we looked at our dad, if we even know dad. And for most of us, that's not a good image. For those of us that had incredible dads, like mine, there are still things that are jacked up about him. There are still things he did very incorrectly. There are still ways that my heavenly Father is far better. Because only the Father can be perfect. And if you're a follower of Christ, then what has happened is God now looks at you like He looks at His Son. And so imagine yourself being able to say, I can talk to my heavenly Father like this because I'm in Jesus. And Jesus talks to His dad this way. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. In other words, people that don't know God. For they think there will be, they will be heard for their many words. Have you ever been around somebody that prays like that? If I can talk in such an eloquent way, then I can impress you. And then because I can impress you, I can impress God. How stupid can we be? And yet how often... Do we do that? For they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Brothers and sisters, we have a Father already. You have to do nothing to earn Him. He's given Himself over in relationship to you. Not because he doesn't know what you've done. Not because he doesn't know what you need. But because you've been accepted in by virtue of his son. He knows your needs before you even ask. He's a perfect father. He knows you better than you know yourself. He always has your best interest in mind. And what is he doing in your life? Well, if you're a follower of Christ, he's transforming you into Christ-likeness. He's using everything to express to you, I am your father. 
You are my son or daughter. Therefore, what does that mean in terms of prayer? What does Jesus say it means? He says it means ask away. Is there something you need? Don't you dare keep that to yourself. Boldly go before him and ask. Ask knowing not that he'll tend to your every whim, but that he will faithfully give you everything that's good for you. So be bold in your prayers. Come before him with courage. You're not going to ever have a prayer request that the father says, oh, I haven't thought of that one. He already knows everything you need and he wants you to come to climb up in his lap and say, Daddy, I I think I need this. I think I need this. That's the kind of father you have. Look at the next verse, verse 9. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Friends, it means we have a father who's on the throne. Not the throne of the U.S. or even the U.N. Not the throne just of the earth. The throne of everything. God reigns. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good. This father's in charge. When we feel like life is spinning out of control and we have no idea what to do next, when we failed again, when we've been heartbroken again, when the news we receive in the email or on the phone or in the text devastates us yet again, We have a Father in heaven whose character is good and worthy of praise. We can trust Him. He's worthy of that. The next verse, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that tell us about our Father? Our Father has a kingdom. He is not a God over a a little tiny people group who are weird and freaks, even though that's how we feel in Tempe, Arizona. We have a God whose kingdom will reign over everyone, everywhere. And His kingdom is not a kingdom of sadness and corruption. It's not a kingdom of tyranny and crisis. It's not a kingdom of violence and abuse. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace and love and joy and harmony. His kingdom right now is present in the hearts of anyone who has given life over to Him and in, collected in any people who gather together who are gathered in His name as a church. But we should be praying that God's kingdom would grow and expand. Isn't it good to see God as Father? Isn't that good? And don't you want that for others? So pray, Father, Your kingdom... Come and spread on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the Father desires. Verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. Christians, we have a Father who isn't selfish. He doesn't hoard resources for Himself. He's not lazy. He's not out playing golf while we're crying out to Him. He's not sitting watching Netflix while you have a legitimate need. He's present and caring. His resources are unlimited. And He promises that as we seek Him, He will always provide for our basic needs. And not only does He promise to provide for them, but He delights in them. So we can come to Him boldly, with courage, with joy. 
trusting that whatever we have is what He wants us to have. Verse 12, And forgive us our debts. Some of you are like, Yes! MasterCard! Yes, ASU! As we have forgiven our debtors. But that's not what He's talking about. He's talking about a debt far greater than even your debts. He's talking about the debt of our sin. Brothers and sisters, catch this. God the Father made His goodwill known in the Scriptures and we rejected it. We chose to run our own way. We chose our own rule to live by. And yet the Father is such a loving Father that He says, it is simply not enough for me to pour out only wrath, which is what we deserved. He said, but I also want to pour out love. And so the Son came. And the Son lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death in order that the Father's wrath could be put on the Son and the Son's goodness could be received by us. May we never, ever, ever get over that thought. That is the greatest news there can ever be. For your debt is great and my debt is great. But if it's given to Christ, then the debt is gone. And so those who get that, feel that, have experienced that are called by the Father then to be ones who forgive. We don't have a God that we should fear condemnation. We don't have a God that we should fear and crave His approval and validation. We've already been given it. Our Father forgives. And the more we rest in that, the more we will find It doesn't make any difference what anybody else does. We can too forgive. For the heart that's been forgiven, there is immense forgiveness that can be poured out. Finally, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Christians, if that's who the Father is, if that reflects the character of God, then that God we can run to when we're tempted. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. When we mess up the absolute most, we can go to Dad and say, Father, Dad, would you forgive me yet again? Would you lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil I just did? And this dad never says, get out of my house. This dad never says, I disown you. This dad never says, you're a loser. This dad always has open arms of love. So if you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus, then you don't yet know that father. But you can. God will adopt you into his family, not because of anything you've done or haven't done, but simply because of Jesus. If that makes sense to you, then that is evidence that God is already at work in your life. And so all that you need to do today is come to believe in the gospel, which is the message that God the Son took on all of your failure and died and rose again. And now God the Father wants to regard you as He regards His Son. And so if you will simply say in your own words, 
I believe that. And I want to turn from sin and turn to God. And now God's in charge. Then in an instant, you're adopted. You're reborn into the family of God. John 1 says it like this, but to all who receive him, this is Jesus, who believe in his name, he's given the right to become children of God who were born not by flesh or the will of man, but of God. Maybe you're here today and you already know you've been adopted into the family of God. You worship God as your father. Then hear these words again. 1 John 3, see how very much our Father loves us. For He's called us His children. That's what we are. Friends, God loves us because we're His children, not because of what we do. So rejoice, brothers and sisters. Lift up your heads. We are God's children. What better position could you ever possibly hold? Don't allow yourself to serve towards some other position as though that's greater. You've already been given the greatest possible status you could ever have. And God's love for us propels us to love others. In other words, God's love for us moves us to share that love with others. So settle in, rest in, be at home in the fact that you're a child, a son, a daughter of a perfect father. And then finally, in closing, we can't spend 40 minutes talking about God as our Father and not say something to the earthly fathers here. Fellow dads in the room, we have been given both a tremendous honor and a shocking level of responsibility. Every single time you hear the name dad or daddy or father, I hope you marvel with wonder at the opportunity God's given you. He's given you in some tiny way a sliver of who He is in order that you could share that with another human being. Our tasks as dads is to be growing in our knowledge and experience of God as our Father to such a degree that the way we father would point our kids back to the earth, the Heavenly Father, not pull them away. That the way we treat our kids would enable them to see God as their perfectly heavenly father. When I think of my nine years as a father, I'm very well aware of the fact that that must come from a daily trust in God's grace, not in my own strength. But what a joy to be given that opportunity. Fathers, start your days on your knees. Admit your neediness to God. Run to your heavenly father. So you'll be a good dad. Find older models in our church family and ask them for help. Invite your GC to hold you responsible and accountable for this most sacred of responsibilities. And to the rest of the men in the room who are not a biological father, there are plenty of people in our church families whose dads don't love them whose dads may never provide them with that picture. There are plenty of people sitting around this room right now who have no interaction with their earthly dad. Would you prayerfully consider what that means to you? If this is your church home, if you're a brother in Christ, might you take on some version 
of that fatherly role for some younger person in our family. You have the knowledge of God as Father. Don't underestimate the influence you could have on another among us. That may be the reason God has you here. Let's pray. Father, if there's ever a message we need your Holy Spirit to help us grasp, it is this one. Father, thank you that you have made yourself known, that you don't expect us to know you and then not tell us who you are, that you have plainly, clearly, transparently revealed yourself. And yet there's mystery there and it's so much more and greater than we could ever comprehend in and of ourselves. So, Father, would you send your Spirit to fill us that we might comprehend more than we're able to in our own self and strength. We thank you and praise you that you are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And in particular, we thank you today that you are the perfect Heavenly Father. And I pray right now that as I talk to you on behalf of all my friends in the room, if there is just one here who has not yet turned to you and found you as the perfect father and been adopted into your family. Maybe they thought they did that in the past, but they are realizing today they they don't experientially get what I'm talking about. Or maybe they've thought this is all a bunch of garbage, but today it's clicked and made sense. Or maybe they're hearing it for the very first time. Father, speak to that one person, that two persons, that five people, that they might respond to you, come to believe in Christ and accept you and give life to you. And there, therein, in that moment, they're forgiven and they're called son or daughter. What a miracle. God, if there are others here who are already your son or your daughter who have have drifted away and are, are not rejoicing in what they've been given by you, God, thank you that they can return, that you are a father with open arms. I pray they'd go now. And may we all sing this song with a more rich understanding of God, our Father as a holy God. In Jesus' name I pray.